Hey y'all, it's Megan. It's Ashley. And Dylan. And this is the Forward South Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Forward South Podcast. We're so excited. We're continuing with our new format and the girls loved it they did they did love it y'all really loved it so thank you and we're excited that you listened to it i mean i've been logging into our analytics stuff every day is it popping it's popping it's popping it's popping you guys are like actually pressing play and listening to the whole (laughs) i would just like to say like how disorienting it is that somebody listened to something that i said in this voice (laughs) in this voice (laughs) 40 minutes. So, like, y'all are saints. Thank you. Thanks for hanging in there. (laughs) Please keep coming back. Anyway, so we've got another fun-filled episode for you today. We talked to one of our favorite people, Kanisha Brown. And, you know, now we're just going to get it popping with some Southern stories. So... I'll just dive right in. I've got a story to talk about this week. It actually was just published in AL.com earlier today. Um, I was also a little late on looking for my story for the week, but this was a good one to find <laughs> because this was actually, well, the, the story in AL.com is an op-ed by John Archibald. We all are familiar with a lot of his writing and everything for AL.com. Great work. But he is talking about uh, a book that's recently been published or I think is coming out from Peggy Wallace Kennedy, who is the daughter of the infamous George Wallace, former governor of Alabama, who, you know, notoriously stood um, with state troopers on the front steps of University of Alabama, blocking students from entering the school um, and, you know, was a um, huge just white supremacist and, um, asshole what more can you say (laughs) (laughs) and so uh so i found this to be really interesting because in in this piece uh john archibald is talking about how peggy wallace kennedy in her latest book without specifically saying the name donald trump basically says in 2016 a lot of what i saw reminded me of my father of what i saw you, you all probably know Peggy Wallace Kennedy has notorious has you know for years now come out and talked about how she you know kind of disavowed her father's positions and policies and everything like that and um, and so she's continuing that outspokenness in her latest um, book The Broken Road George Wallace and a Daughter's Journey to Reconciliation is what it's titled but this is just pretty peculiar especially given uh, Trump's recent statements on uh, for Congresswomen, the squad, and then more recently his statements on Baltimore just last week. And this is no surprise to us. We've been talking about Trump's racism since he was on the campaign trail. Many of us have been talking about it since before he even ever ran for president. And here we are still having this discussion, and we have people who have very close relationships to white supremacists Ooh. coming out and being like, I'm feeling like this, this is a little familiar. It's got a, a familiar smell, you know? It, it, it's, it's walking like a duck, it's quacking like a duck out here. So it must be a white supremacist. So it must be a white supremacist. <laughs> So, you know, props to Peggy, I will say, for just for just calling it like it is. I know she she could have taken it a step further, but I don't think that she probably wanted to make this book about 
uh, Donald Trump, and I can understand that as well. But the fact that we're seeing her, you know, the the daughter of George Wallace come out and literally say that those connections are there, and much of the rhetoric and the tone of Trump's campaign and even his policies and what he's saying today. Um, and continues to set today have those, you know, sound very racist. Uh, you know, it's it's just something that I just I can't even freaking believe that we are still having to work through this as a country and try to understand what is what does racism look like when it's staring right at us. You know. Yeah. Um. You know, on a on a really positive note on this story, though, I would just like to say um, that I really uh, I really. I'm happy and admire her for um, being brave enough to seek reconciliation. I think we're at a place in our country where, yes, we have to recognize racism. We have to call it for what it is. Um, but we also have to work towards some sort of reconciliation so that we can all live um, and, and you know, be in this country together um, and all living our best lives. So thank you for coining. I mean, she put that word in the title. And I think that is that such is important. an important aspect of this. So thank you, Peggy. And hopefully that book will serve as a model for us to have those hard conversations with our families and the people in our lives who we do have to reconcile with their virulent racism. So, yeah, shouts out for that potentially being another resource or tool that we can look to to say, hey, we can have this conversation and we can reckon with how wild it is that we have to share space with mm -hmm. racists. Sure. And I know like, you know, the thing we hear so often from white people when we talk about race and racial justice is, well, what does that have to do with me? And it wasn't my, you know, it wasn't me. It wasn't my, you know, parents. It, you know, they, they distance themselves from it. And, you know, this was just her father. Maybe that would be harder for her to do. But also, some folks would argue this was, it wasn't her out there. I mean, she talks about in the book she was a child when this happened. And she was still kind of trying to just figure out why people were so even angry at her father and at her family. And she didn't really know what was going on at that time. But here she is just acknowledging um, what he did, the harm that he did, and why, like, as Megan pointed out, that word reconciliation is so important for, you know, the it, the truth that she's standing in now, so. Speaking of staring racism in the face, uh, my Southern story of the week is, I don't know if y'all heard about this, but about a week ago, the Emmett Till Memorial Commission had to remove the memorial that they had placed at the Tallahatchie Tallahatchie River marking the spot where Emmett Till's body was found because the memorial had been riddled with bullet holes and not only that but a few fine fellows decided to take a photo um, of themselves three white males from the University of Mississippi holding guns in front of the bullet ridden riddled uh, memorial and so now the Memorial Commission has removed the memorial and it will be bulletproof when they reinstall it. And the gravity of, first of all, that was not the first time that it had been vandalized. It's been vandalized several times over the years. But for them to have to remove it completely because people have the gall to smear the name of a 14-year-old who was killed... Um, in the name of racism. It's just sad um, that it has come to that. 
So, yeah, we will. We're now reckoning with a time where we have to make our memorials bulletproof because there are crazy people out there who would shoot a memorial to a child who got killed. And if I'm not mistaken, these were students. Yes. These were students at Ole Miss. And And they were in a fraternity. I know which one, but I'm not going to say it. (laughs) (laughs) We we were very familiar with that Mm -hmm. fraternity. Anybody who went to a PWI in the South probably could name it. So we'll just leave that where it is. But what I will say is I I, I know there's been some criticism of also uh, the University of Ole Miss's response to it because I think they've actually had this photo or knowledge of it since March and then now it's kind of surfaced and everything yes. and so they're trying to maneuver and and uh, message you know themselves kind of out of this and everything but you know accountability needs to be um, brought on all ends and if by, if the university is saying that um, these students will be able to remain students they're essentially being complicit in what really is a show of racial violence, because even though this is not a person they're attacking by shooting bullets into this, which stands for a person, a, a, a boy who was attacked um, and killed at such a young age, they are signaling to every black student on that campus at Ole Miss what their feelings are about them and where they stand. Um, and this is what I'm about to say could be an entire podcast in and of itself, but I will just leave it at this. Um, when you have a group of basically adolescents, especially young Southern boys, and they just are in this echo chamber where all they hear is each other and they all have st- stupid, hateful, terrible ideas. There's no one there to check them because they're not surrounding Mm. themselves with um, people who may think differently than them. Um, They end up rallying each other up to do something as stupid as this. Because I know I know there's people listening to this going, why would you be so dumb? You know, and that's what it is. It's it's an echo chamber. It's power. And it's this invincibility that they feel that clearly um, has been working out for them since since uh, this happened. So um, there's a lot of there's a lot of power uh, dynamics here at play. And um, I just hope that they, they too reconcile at some point um, with this and how, how gravely um, ridiculous and, uh, you know, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Um, It was disgusting. And it was deplorable, (laughs) deplorable. And um, it was disrespectful is really the word I was. Yes. That was the D word. Um, just truly at its core disrespectful. So I just, you know, I um, I am a praying type. So I'll just pray that they learn better mm-hmm. and do better and get the justice that they deserve. So that's God. Um, all right. Well, I have a positive story today because I saw what and y'all hoes were doing. And on a positive note. <laughs> I saw please. what y'all were doing and I was like, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to end this happy this time because I definitely had a sad one last time too. Um, so uh, Southern states, Southern communities are um, starting to uh, provide their communities, especially uh, those that are most disadvantaged and most affected by uh, food deserts and uh, chronic diseases like heart disease and diabetes. Um, by giving their communities gardens for free um, so that people can get access to healthy grown food where they know where it comes from um, and uh, so that they can start to combat some of the issues that are linked to food deserts and poor health outcomes. Um, Now, 
I wanted to give two examples this week. Uh, the Montgomery Advertiser did a story most recently about um, a community in, in Sumter County. Um, and they have started a food garden um, for people to come and get food for free um, so that they can take it home and feed their families. Uh, so, you know, I think it, what an important point here is, is that rural communities especially experience food deserts. Um, you know, a lot of times in rural communities, all you've got up the street is a Dollar General. Um, and then even closer by, you've just got that gas station that sometimes serves or, or sells pork chops, honestly. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's all you've got. Um, and or else you need to drive 30 minutes into the nearest Walmart. Um, so by creating gardens that are community led and available to everybody who lives there, um, you solve a huge access issue uh, for, for those families. Additionally, you may have heard that um, the city of Atlanta just created the, the um, country's largest food wow. uh, forest, is what they're calling it. Um, NPR did a story on this a couple of weeks ago, and I got really intrigued. And um, it turns out that they let people take home up to a pound of food and uh, feed their families. But in addition to making the food available, they also have specialists that help teach people how to cook that food, what are some things they can do with that food, and how to make that food last. So um, both in uh, rural and urban um, southern communities, we need more access to healthy food, and each community kind of knows which way they should go about doing it. And so I just thought that was cool to share that that's some positive work being done in communities to make sure that people can just literally have access to the food that their bodies need. Yeah. And I think that's so important, the nature of not only having the space to grow the food, but having people on hand to teach about yeah. um, nutrition, I think that's a an ingenious idea. Yeah, and I think it's just good too to see. I think you know these are providing opportunities for uh, more diverse you know populations of people to be able to actually experience you know these opportunities to go out and garden and and you know really think about the future sustainability of their communities because I wasn't thinking about that a lot growing up and I I had a school that had like an ecology program and greenhouses and all those things I mean I wasn't also really tipping outside too much um, <laughs> anyway it just wasn't my thing Dainty but <laughs> yeah but you know I do think that this is really uh, this is really great and when I think about you know especially in under-resourced marginalized communities usually black and brown communities where these just are not opportunities that they're getting to do um, or think about when it means when, and it really does trigger not just oh gardening skills but you're thinking about that investment back into your community into your home and this is just it's great it's a good positive story for the week so those are our Southern Stories of the Week. Um, you can always, of course, let us know if there's topics and stories that you'd also like to hear from us um, or hear us talk about. And we're going to go on to the next segment. So there it goes. Hey, everyone. So we are here with someone who I'm a huge fan of. <laughs> I'm so excited to be doing this interview with the fabulous coordinator of Rolling to the Poles for Delta Sigma Theta Incorporated. Um, I am here with Miss Kanisha Brown. Thank you for sitting down with us, Kanisha. Thank you for having me. Um, I really want to see this person that you're talking about so <laughs> wonderfully. <laughs> we're looking at 
fabulous. Looking I'll, at I'll her. Take it. I'll take it. Um, thank you for having me, honestly. Thank you so much. Um, we've been really excited to do this because, of course, well, I guess our audience may not realize this everywhere, but right here in Montgomery, where we are now, we are facing uh, the upcoming municipal election. And this will be include our mayor, our city council, which are critical positions. And the work you've been doing with rolling to the polls now for years is just honestly extraordinary. I know since I've lived here in Montgomery, I've been hearing about you and this work and fortunately have gotten to know you over time and even had the chance to work with you. And so why don't you just start off by telling us a little bit about how you really got into this endeavor and what rolling to the polls means to you? Okay. Um, well, to start back on when rolling to the polls was started, it actually kicked back in 2016 and a funny story behind it we were just kind of sitting around um i was in a group text talking with some friends who was watching the presidential debates <laughs> ahead of the 2016 presidential election and then when we started seeing you know who was emerging as the top candidates you know we were just joking like okay we can't have these people you know get into the White House, so we need to kind of organize, you know, around getting people to vote. And it started as a joke, and then like a couple of days later, we were like, no, seriously, we do need to, you know, rally the troops and make sure everybody's engaged and informed. So what we did, um, met with my chapter, which is the Montgomery Alumni Chapter of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, um, and I am currently the chairperson for our political awareness committee. So we just kind of sat down, just kind of mapped out um, areas in the Montgomery area that had routinely low voter turnout. Um, a lot of those areas are what you would consider kind of forgotten neighborhoods and low income neighborhoods. So we wanted to make sure that we went into those neighborhoods going door to door, um, just kind of making sure that people were registered to vote. They knew that the election was coming up. Um, another thing that we encountered a lot too was that a lot of people felt that they could not vote due to a felony conviction. Mm -hmm. So we later also add that into uh, one of our missions to help um, work with that. And even though personally the outcome of the 2016 presidential election did not turn out how I envisioned, it also kind of motivated us to kind of press forward to make sure that we have more people involved in the electoral process, making sure that people know what's going on, who their candidates are, as well as vetting their candidates yes. um, before voting for them. And um, as we come up on now, the municipal election, which is kind of the first that we've kind of tackled on since our implementation, because we've kind of always been on a presidential year or a midterm um, election cycle. So we're excited to see how it turns out. So can you tell us a little bit about what that work looks like on the day-to-day -day, um, <laughs> and what the field is and, and all of those things? Phew. Well, um, <laughs> some people would be shocked to know that this is not really a full-time job of mine. I actually do have another job that I work from 8 to 5, sometimes longer doing, and after I'm finished with that, then I start work on this. Um, it's a lot of work, but I would say it's not – overwhelming to the point to where I feel like is not impacting change. Um, we look at um, statistics. We look at how many people are registered here in the county, um, which is, you know, actually pretty good. I think we're probably at a 91, 92% percentage of people that are registered to vote in Montgomery. The issue is of people actually going to vote. Um, and some of the precincts that we've examined over the years, and um, let me kind of rewind back when we first started doing this work, we kind of 
pull numbers from like the past three or four election cycles. So we had some precincts that had an average turnout of 3%, um, some at 18%. And, um, you know, let your county officials tell you um, a good turnout for an election here in Montgomery is like probably 32 to 38%. And, you know, that sounds good to them, but I mean, if you look at the numbers, that's not good at all and that's not overwhelming so we've kind of set the bar low in terms of voting turnout but in terms of like you know crunching numbers seeing what the critical needs are um motivating people to work (laughs) motivating people to get involved um the voting rights restoration piece has been pretty much a big deal um and what we're doing and um it's i mean like i say it's a lot but it's it's meaningful so kenesha what is What is something that has happened in this work that you were most proud of? A couple of things. Um, And it it may sound a little cheesy um, or um, minute or whatnot, but one thing that I can say, like when we first started doing this back in 2016, um, there wasn't many, there weren't many organizations that were offering things as simple as free rides to the polls. And even though we only probably transported maybe 35 people um, during that time, that was 35 people who went to go, you know, make their voice heard. And during that time, um, it was a young woman who was picked up to go vote. Um, She was pregnant. Um, The volunteer drove her to go vote. She went in and voted. Um, And you know, presidential election years is always a good, decent turnout. So after waiting, went into vote, she got back in the car and she told the volunteer, could she drive her, could he drive her to the hospital? Cause she was in labor. Oh my God. Wow. And, <laughs> oh my and so, you know, he took her to the hospital. And after that, actually, he was like, I'm, I'm done with my volunteership for the day. <laughs> but you know, we had an election baby and you know, for her to be in labor, cause she was in labor before she went to go vote. Mm-hmm. She made sure that she went and voted then after she did that she was like hey i'm ready to drop this baby so you know that even though i'm like some you know the common person would probably be like man if i'm in labor i'm not about to <laughs> i'm not about to think about anything but she was just so determined to go cast her vote that you know she did that and you know came back and handled business per se and another thing that i felt that was kind of very meaningful is that going to tell a person who think they can't vote due to a felony conviction. And you're having a conversation with them to say, hey, all is not lost. And you're explaining the process to them. And they're realizing that they can actually go vote. Um, Just for the listeners who may not realize, in 2017, the governor, Governor Kay Ivey, did sign a bill into law, HB 282, which was the Mm -hmm. Definition of Moral Turpitude Act. And that did create a pathway Mm -hmm. to restore the rights for um, hundreds of thousands of uh, people with former felony convictions. But Mm -hmm. I mean, I know this has been a huge part of you all's effort and work as well is to go out and actually educate people on that and then help Mm -hmm. them get those rights restored. Mm -hmm. How has that also impacted the work you all are doing and the conversations you're having with people who really might not even know, Mm -hmm. oh, I can now vote. Right. Um, And it's actually been interesting um, for the most part because what I've noticed with those who have convictions, when they have those charges, when they have those convictions and those fines to pay, 
of course they get a letter from board of pardons and paroles telling them what they can't do and what they have to do in in terms to you know reconcile their conviction when the more interpretive law passed in 2017 secretary of state said he was not going to take the time to let people know that they can get their rights restored because they he considered it a waste of resources so it was kind of a big deal and kind of disappointing in my opinion in my personal opinion on behalf of the secretary of state because i'm like these are people in the thousands Mm -hmm. that can just simply go register to vote um to put it in perspective here in montgomery there are roughly over four thousand people that have been hindered due to a felony conviction that can vote and i mean four thousand can significantly impact any election Mm -hmm. So what we've noticed on the ground is that people just don't know. And once they do know and they realize and they go through the process and they actually can vote, it has changed their entire thinking on the process. And even though we've kind of, you know, helped people in the hundreds, those are still people in the hundreds that want to go vote that are more engaged, that are coming to the forums, that are getting transformed to go vote. So it's been impactful, but it's still at the same time kind of frustrating because I'm like, why are we not doing a better job and letting these people know that they can vote? So So we also know that just a couple of years ago in 2017 as well, and I think the entire country is quite aware of this election. This was the 2017 special election that ultimately ended up in Doug Jones winning the Senate seat in Alabama. He's Mm -hmm. the first Democrat to secure a Senate seat in Alabama Mm -hmm. in 25 years. And i just like to say to all of the black women listening and here at the table with me, thank you. (laughs) Because uh, as many publications captured and absolutely should have, black women had an incredible turnout and ultimately um, exit polls show that 98% of black women came out and supported, or 98% of the women who did come out and vote um, a black woman did in fact support Doug Jones in that election. And mm-hmm. so we know that black women are incredibly a uh, critical part of our electorate, but oftentimes, and with this really being an exception, that is something that I feel like is missing as we talk about politics nationally, locally, mm-hmm. at the state level. Why do you think that that is? And then also, what do you, are your thoughts about what this means for the upcoming elections, both locally and at the presidential level? Well, the answer is kind of twofold for me. Because back in December um, 2017, when that election happened, um, the story before <laughs> the election was pretty much saying that, you know, if Doug Jones lose, it would be because of black voters. Mm-hmm. They're not engaged. Mm-hmm. They did. And, you know, I felt some kind of way about that. And this is me speaking as an individual because I'm like, you know, if it doesn't go how the nation wants it to go, then we'll be the scapegoat <laughs> yep. of the election. So, you know, with rolling to the polls, we, you know, did what we had to do. I know we, some of us were up at 3.30 putting out signs and everything, getting wow. position or whatnot. Um, personally, by time of 7 o'clock, I was already asleep. I was just like, somebody just text me, let me know how it turned out. I'm <laughs> just exhausted. So the next day, I'm waking up to all kind of mentions on Facebook, text messages or whatever that we did it. And then all of a sudden, 
the articles came out about saying thank you to the black women of Alabama, which is great. Um, we got on that national spotlight. And then another thing that kind of happened that was phenomenal to me was that it encouraged a lot of black women to run for office in the yes. next statewide yes. election. And we had roughly over 70 black women that ran for office, which was wonderful in my opinion. But one thing that I noticed is that about time the primary came, which was in June, um, a lot of those black women did not win their elections. Mm -hmm. By the time the general election came in November, even less black women ran, um, won their positions. And again, I felt some kind of way because it's like we were glorified, we were congratulated, we were a pat on the back, so to say. But when it came down to that true Greek work, that true support, uh, monetary support or anything like that, they did not receive that. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and even still today, as much as I love Senator Jones, um, and I do hope that he is reelected, I still feel like he has not opened up the conversation to openly talk with the black women who got him in office. Yes. Wow. So as a black woman, sometimes I'm conflicted, like you count on us to do so much, yet, we don't have seats at the table like we're supposed to. And I know that's kind of happening gradually, but I think it could be more in terms of paying attention to a loyal electorate who's been very loyal for years and decades. Speaking of representative governments, um, because this is <laughs> you know a local election coming up, what is your sense of how this will play out? Um, <laughs> um, it will be interesting to watch. Um, there are a lot of candidates running um, on the municipal level. Um, I think as of right now, we have 12 candidates running for mayor and roughly 26 candidates running for city council. I think all but one city council district is contested. Mm -hmm. So it will really be, it will really come down to essentially turn out and which candidate can encourage <laughs> the most people to come out and vote for him. Um, I do think there are some good viable candidates that are running. I also think there are some that just, you know, kind of woke up one day and say, hey, I want to run. And it's fine because that's that's how democracy works. So, I mean, we can't speak against that. But it's just been very interesting to observe i do wish that it was more women on the ballot Certainly. um was a little disappointed in that but you know maybe the next election cycle that can change i am hoping <laughs> um one more question for you sure. before we have to wrap up so recently you uh took a trip to um yale <laughs> whoop, whoop. um and you know, I already loved Yale because of Gilmore Girls. Um, <laughs> so, but then when I realized one of my other heroes was going there, it was even better. Um, so, can you tell us about what that trip was and and what all you did? Uh, yes, um, I was accepted into the twenty um, fifth class of the Women's Campaign School at Yale University, um, which was very exciting, um, very insightful. Um, I learned a lot. A lot of the stuff that I thought I knew, I barely touched the surface on that. And um, it was great to just be in a group 
or among a group of women from all over, from different backgrounds. Um, we had women there from Zimbabwe, um, wow. Mongolia, um, very important dignitary from the United Kingdom. Um, this was also the first class that had a large number of Republican women, uh, which was a total of 12, and that's considered uh, one of their largest cohorts of Republican women. So it was good. We had a chance to hear from different people involved in politics, spanning from um, representatives from the Republican Senatorial Committee, from those from the Progressive um, Republican Women's Organization. Um, we heard from a senior advisor from Kamala Harris's campaign. I mean, it was very insightful and it really kind of motivated me to help mostly women, but anybody <laughs> in the electoral process in running campaigns. So in addition to organizing work, I am sort of a political in terms of running campaigns. Not and that sort just of. Kinda, <laughs> you are. You right. are. And that just kind of motivated me because I've always been a little skittish, like, you know, how can I navigate both? But after attending Yale um, program, I got my push to like, you can do both. Um, one thing I will say, I miss the weather. <laughs> um, wholeheartedly the highest up there was 73 so when I got off the plane in Atlanta I was mad all over again you don't but like this heat <laughs> the yeah. lowest here isn't even 73 yeah. <laughs> so but I mean it, I wouldn't I would never take for granted that experience I mean it was wonderful on behalf of uh, Montgomerians, as, as Montgomerians ourselves, we'd like to thank you. Um, everything that you do makes our city better, mm -hmm. no matter mm -hmm. what. Um, and we just deeply appreciate you taking out the time and, and dedicating all of yourself to this city <laughs> and to um, the electorate. So well, thank you. And I, and I just want to say, um, first, thank you. But it's, it's really not just me by myself. Um, it's a great team of people, mostly women, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that are helping um, change the mindset of a lot of Montgomerians, and I am so thankful and appreciative to them, especially um, my Soros. They have been on the forefront to instill change. So, yeah, just please thank them. Go <laughs> women me. in general. That's what we Shout learned out to from DST. this. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much, oh, Kanisha. Thank you for having me. All right, so we are back for my favorite segment. That's the Bless Your Heart segment, which we got a lot of great feedback on after last week's episode. I think you guys really enjoyed basically hearing us chew people out. Um, and I mean, I don't blame you. So, Megan, why don't you kick us off this week with your Bless Your Heart? Um, first of all, it's an honor to be chosen to go first. Thank you. <laughs> um, so... For anyone who knows me personally, this is a rant that you've heard me have a lot. Um, but for those who don't, um, welcome to the club. You get to join it. Um, so my bless your heart this week is every state government and government official that chose to um, not expand Medicaid mm. during the ACA um, and everything. Okay. I'm not even going to go into... <laughs> I'm not even going to go... If they're laughing at me. <laughs> No, I'm just laughing at the audacity that these governments had. To <laughs> they're turning free down money. free money. Yes. Okay. So, a, that, okay. Number one, that's that. Um, but two, so just so you guys know, when the ACA was passed, that's the um, Affordable Care Act. Thank you, Obamacare. Um, it changed up the way that hospitals were funded. 
fundamentally. And, bec- and the reason it did that is because it, ex- it allowed for things like the expansion of Medicare or Medicaid, excuse me, Medicaid for um, low income people to jump on. And it, it essentially, you know, the ACA was all about getting more people on insurance. Mm-hmm. And so it had to had to change fundamentally how hospitals were funded. Now, the problem with that is that in areas like Alabama, where most of our hospitals are rural, um, when we didn't expand Medicaid, the reimbursement for our hospitals was lower. And now we see this crisis that you're hearing from all of these officials about how rural hospitals are closing, okay? And First of all, I don't need to explain that why a hospital is important for communities. I don't. I don't have to. <laughs> like people deserve to live um, from preventable pre- preventable deaths and things like they deserve to get medical care. And also, people um, who live in rural communities deserve high paying jobs that hospitals offer. Okay. But now that we are uh, almost ten years post ACA, um, there's all this research coming 10 out. Ten years. There's all this research coming out about. Um, what actually happened when states didn't decide to take the federal money and expand Medicaid? And uh, there's a mo- there's the most recent article um, that Vox put out um, is a study that the U.S. could have averted about 15,000 deaths if every state had expanded Medicaid. So the literal collateral of not expanding Medicaid in the country was 15,600 people specifically. And the collateral um, for my home state of Alabama is that uh, people are dying when they don't have to be and that people are losing their jobs and major economic centers in their communities uh, because of a political stance of a governor and a state legislature who doesn't want to uh, do anything to do with Obama. So bless your heart, you (laughs) selfish, selfish leaders and uh, you know, I hope I, I hope that the Jesus that you pray to a lot um, comes to you, and Oof. I hope that you realize that Jesus healed the sick no matter how poor they were, and um, I hope that you have an, an awakening and that you practice literally what you preach and um, choose to expand Medicaid, even though there's not as much money for it now. Do it out of the goodness of your heart. But Jesus would expand Medicaid. You know, less Jesus would be for Medicare for all heart. of us. <laughs> <laughs> Well, my goodness, um, how do I follow that up except with, uh, you know, someone who also made themselves look like an idiot? Um, So (laughs) I was up this morning um, and I actually had to shoot this to uh, Ashley and Megan because, you know, um, it's I'm not a morning person. It takes me a while to get moving. And but that one woke you up. Did it. Did it. Wow. It absolutely woke me up. So. I'm just scrolling and I actually see uh, this tweet that's been shared on my timeline from Jonathan Wiseman. Some of you may know Jonathan Wiseman because he is uh, the deputy editor at uh, uh, in Washington for the New York Times, I'm sorry. And so Jonathan had actually responded to a tweet from, and I, I apologize in advance if I'm butchering his name, but I believe it is Waleed Shahid. And Waleed is actually with the Justice Dems. Uh, They are uh, essentially who backed and really got AOC elected. Um, So that tells you just briefly about what kind of where they stand on issues. So Waleed had um, 
shared a quote from Claire McCaskill in her commentary last night following the uh, first night of the second round uh, presidential uh, Democratic primary debate. I'm so tired. Yeah, yeah, already. So, <laughs> so Claire was um, on MSNBC and she she was quoted saying, free stuff from the government does not play well in the Midwest. Claire McCaskill lost her last election, I'll just remind you. <laughs> okay, so while well, responded to that quote from Claire McCaskill saying, you know, Rashida T- uh, Tlaib and Ilhan Omar are also from the Midwest and two, Medicare and so- Social Security are both technically free stuff and they play very well. To which Jonathan decided to swing on in, and he quote tweeted that only to say, saying Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar from the Midwest is like saying Representative Lloyd Doggett is from Texas or Representative John Lewis is from the Deep South. Come on. He brought John Lewis, John Southern Bloody Sunday Lewis's name into this conversation. John Lewis is from Troy, Alabama. Okay. And the thing about this is, is we, you know, we started for it South really to counter exactly folks like Jonathan, who has this incredible platform. He works for the New York Times. I wish he actually used it. Um, and, you know, all, with all those resources, maybe he could do some research on the South because we know we see this every day, but we know this is historically true. The South is definitely a place where progressives or where progressives live, where progressivism in many ways has also been birthed and provided a blueprint to so many other progressive movements in this country since civil rights. Um, and I just can't believe that he fixed his ashy cracked fingers <laughs> to put out this tweet this morning, bringing John Lewis into this, but also to just group, uh, not just Southerners, but people in the Midwest all together into this kind of conservative bubble. I understand what representation, what the representation we have looks like. I understand that we have uh, Republican and red state governments at the local level and Congress. And trust me, it's a frustration for many of us. But let's talk about the fact as to why that's the case. Let's talk about how voter suppression shows up. Let's talk about how um, many of these states have chipped and chipped away at voting rights. As you all just heard from Kanisha, you hear about the work that folks are out here doing in order just to ensure that folks even have the proper education. You just heard her talk about how the Secretary of State in Alabama literally said after legislation was passed in order to create a pathway for people to restore their voting rights that he was not interested in leveraging the resources of his department at the State Department in Alabama who handles elections in order to inform and educate people about how voting rights restoration works. So bless your heart, Jonathan, because you have far too much privilege, far too much access to be this stupid on this issue. And if you don't know anything about the South, you can listen to Forest South. You can turn to many of the other incredible outlets that are doing this reporting. You can look at a history book. And because even in Alabama's less than stellar history books it covers much of this and so i just don't know how we continue to find ourselves in this loop of trying to explain to people how to talk about the south and mainstream media but hopefully you know this message reaches jonathan and so many more I would also just like to end this with Jonathan Wikipedia is a thing. It is right there. And uh, 
you could have mm. saw John Lewis and it literally would have said, grew up in Troy, Alabama, before you tweeted that. Like, so thanks. Very simple, very easy. Uh, yeah, like Dylan said, just check out these other Southern media groups that are out here reporting on the Deep South and the people in it. Very easy. Well, that's it for Bless Your Heart this week. And um, we'll be back with more um, to wrap up. All right, we're back with Who Are Your People? Um, Ashley, why don't you kick us off this week with your person? My person is... I like Insta-stalk them. (laughs) I know I'm not the only one. But my person is Chica, the rapper from Montgomery, Alabama, who is absolutely killing it in these streets. She just released another new single, High Rises, Go Listen. The video was cute. She shot it in Montgomery. Um, Could I also mention not only Chica the rapper, but Chica the Calvin Klein model. model. You know, for the girls who listen to the podcast who are in New York, you know, walk around Times Square, you may have seen. You know, she's posted up there. She's there. She's present. Um, we love, I, I just, I cannot be more excited to see her rise. And like, we got to meet her and it just is so exciting. Yeah. And also um, Chica, the activist who used her platform whenever the um, Alabama abortion ban went nationwide. And um, she, I mean, she did the damn thing. So Chica, you are my people. Also, I would just like to brag and say that Chica did a show with Forward South um, before she moved to New York, and it's still one of my most proudest moments. Yes. So, <laughs> we love you, Chica. We love you, Chica. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm this week, um, unfortunately, acknowledging what is truly um, an epidemic in our country, and that is um, the death of yet another black trans woman, actually um, all of the... Uh, deaths of trans women in this country this year in 2019 have been um, black women the 12th trans person was just reported um, dead in South Carolina she was found fatally shot and at 29 years old her name was Denali uh, Bear Stuckey and um, you know I, I don't know what more to say on this issue um, like I said this is an epidemic it is ongoing time and time again we are seeing uh, black trans women um, targeted and unfortunately the uh, local and state governments and are have not taken the action um, that really we need to see in order to ensure that there are more protections um, for trans folks and to ensure that um, also the um, the, the the barriers that so often exist in their lives that put them into situations where they are um, not are, where they are even more vulnerable are just simply not being knocked down and um, it's just really unfortunate my heart continues to remain with the trans community um, as a gay man myself these are truly my brothers and sisters and um, you know I will always try to use my voice and platform to uplift their struggle as often as I can. All right. um, My people this week, I wanted to do a special shout out to um, P. 
people who go out and organize their communities. Um, so you guys just heard from Kanisha what that looks like in her life. Um, but I will say this. Uh, democracy is on the line right now. Um, and the and if you feel lost about that, if you feel desperate about about what's happening and you don't know what to do, the number one thing that you can do that has direct impact on voter turnout and healthier elections is go knock on your neighbor's doors, tell them about the candidates that are running or the candidate that you support, remind them to go vote, and then, you know what, take your car on election day and go pick them up and take them to the polls. Um, There are countless people out there doing this grassroots work right now, and um, at times it can be um, grueling, but in, in its best, it is a wonderful way to connect with your community, and it is a wonderful service to do for our democracy. So, if you are a canvasser, a door knocker, a phone banker, or you do, you I don't know, whatever you do to tell people about elections, you are my people. And um, thank you for that work. So that concludes another riveting episode of the Forward South podcast. Before we go, do you all have any updates or announcements you want to mention? Yeah, I do. Uh, So I was talking about community gardens earlier, but I failed to mention that in our own Montgomery, um, Ryan Dalton, who is a teacher at uh, Title I school high school here in town, is starting a community garden at his school. And he's just an awesome educator for a lot of reasons, but also is very community centered. And this community garden is something that um, Montgomery needs deeply. Um, But he's trying to raise money for it because this stuff ain't cheap. So he has a GoFundMe. So if you want to go follow him on Twitter at at Cape Town Brown, um, I'm sure you could message him or scroll a little bit and you'll see where his GoFundMe is. Throw him five, ten, a hundred thousand dollars, whatever <laughs> you're feeling um, and help both uh, kids in Montgomery and community members in Montgomery get access to a great opportunity to learn about gardening and healthy, good food. Yeah, from what I understand, this is something that they've been wanting to do for a number of years over at that school and have always kind of got it started and installed. And so I'm so excited. I know he's already been making some headway on this. And shout out to Ryan. We're really proud of you and so happy for the students at your school and all that this will mean to them. Um, We're also looking for contributors. Uh, We are taking submissions of ideas or things that you are interested in writing for Forest South. Um, Of course, while we love doing our podcast, you all know that this originated from us writing and telling stories. And we want to continue doing that, but we want to open it up and provide so many more of the opportunities. So go to our website, theforwardsouth.com. Check out the submission form. You can find it on our social media pages and send us your ideas and we'll follow up with you and we'll chat about, um, you know, what you might be able to contribute. Yeah, there are already some great submissions coming in and I'm so excited to give people a platform with which to share their own Southern stories. And that's all I got. Awesome. All right, y'all. Thanks for tuning in. It's been a great week. I know you're two times in a row, so let's keep (laughs) the streak going. We'll see you for a third next time. (laughs) Um, Have a blessed week. Let us know whose heart you want us to bless next. Let us know what Southern stories you want told. Who are your people? This is your podcast as much as it is ours. And we're so thankful that you continue to listen. We'll see you around the bend. Bye, y'all. Bye.